Well, praise the Lord for his amazing goodness to us. This display up here each Thanksgiving, I so appreciate because, and thanks Kathy and Deb, it reminds us that the fields are full again this year and that God has provided for our needs, has taken care of us. I don't think people think enough about the alternative. If just one year God withdrew his hand and decided that he'll grow nothing. Human beings and created things and all things would just die, would just perish. It's a wonderful, merciful, loving hand of God that provides for us once again. We take for granted too often, but this Thanksgiving is always a time that we should really reflect deeply upon the, the, the fact that our God provides for us as the sun shine and the rain falls and the fields produce crops and we live because of Christ. Well, when we gather together, I think about the fact that in any given family's life, there are a variety of emotions that may be the case on a day like today. Sometimes um, we are rejoicing, we're at the top of our game and everything's just wonderful. And then there are other times when we're really in, in it tough. The circumstances are conspiring against us and as we look at the landscape that uh, is set before us, it's, it's very scary and burdensome. So what to do? What does God want us to do? On a Thanksgiving Sunday like this, how do we, in particular, face tough times? Tough times, you see, can either weaken you or strengthen you in the Lord. There's two possible directions. And whichever it will be has everything to do with what you decide to do with the Lord. You can either push Him away or praise Him anyway. Your circumstances may not immediately change. In fact, in most cases or often, the circumstances even become more difficult and more challenging. But the key issue is whether or not our circumstances are going to shape our hearts or whether the Lord is going to. That's what's set before us each day. In those tough times... As unbelievable as it may seem, your heart and your soul can actually benefit. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 63 this morning. God can make a very bad time into a rich time for your soul. In fact, this psalm is one of those that has been used through the church for, the age, for, for ages as a, a Thanksgiving psalm. In fact, the, uh, the Arminian church for its, its history has used this as a communion psalm, Psalm 63. Psalm 63 is, um, is placed within an amazing setting that helps us to understand how we can praise the Lord in tough times and difficult circumstances. It says, if you read in the, in the uh, introduction there, it's a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. As soon as we note the desert kind of thing, it doesn't sound like a very fun place to be. Or the wilderness of Judah, however you want to translate it. In fact, if you say wilderness, it probably even sounds worse. And that's exactly what this was. I know sometimes uh, 
you know, when, when we're going through a tough time and someone says to you, well, I know how you're feeling and, and uh, pr- I'll pray for you and I hope things get better and praise the Lord and hallelujah and all that, you know, we're thinking, you really don't know how I'm feeling. You really don't know how bad it is. And um, this is one of those psalms, I think it's safe to say, that David knows exactly how bad it is for you. Because the setting that this particular psalm was written by the psalmist, by King David, was perhaps one of the most difficult and trial-ridden times of his life. When he was chased into the desert of Judah is likely not the time when Saul was chasing him prior to his kingship because at the very end he says, but the king will rejoice in God. And he's referring to himself. He's king. So when was the time that he was chased into the wilderness or chased into the desert when he was king? I mean, kings don't get chased into the desert. They don't get chased into the wilderness. They just destroy everybody who tries to do that. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, 14, and 15, I'm not going to really camp there or anything, but if you want to look there, that's fine. I'll just give you a summary of his life during this time. His daughter Tamar had been raped by his son Amnon. Amnon was her stepbrother. So horrible was the situation, of course, that Absalom, Tamar's brother, brooded over it for some time. And in the course of time, not, that, not very long after that, he gathered around himself some of his buddies who murdered his stepbrother Amnon for raping his sister. At that time, David banished his son Absalom from his presence. For three years, Absalom was sent away in exile. When eventually, Joab got to David and encouraged him to forgive his son and invite him to come back. David invited his son Absalom to come back to the kingdom. But when he returned, David still refused to have anything to do with his son Absalom for two years. He ignored him entirely. Not exactly the kind of forgiveness that the Bible teaches about. And so Absalom, during that particular time, gathered around him different people who were perhaps a little less than enamored with David's leadership, and he conspired against his father, the king, and gathered a group of people around him who wanted Absalom to be king. And so the kingdom was in disarray, it was in disunity, and it was during this time that David and his family and followers were banished and sent out and were chased out into the wilderness and, it's, and, and over to the, to the uh, across the River Jordan. Not knowing what would happen, having his life continue one thing after another to get worse and worse and worse. It was in this context that David writes this psalm to express what was really on his heart. It's quite an amazing thing, really. So if anyone knows about a difficult time in life, it was the writer of this psalm. And he recommends... He recommends five ways to think... 
that will cultivate your heart when the circumstances are difficult so that you can experience soul-deep recovery. Now, by the way, the desert is not normally a stage where we plan a praise event, but that's precisely what Psalm 63 is all about. Listen, oh God, can you feel the passion right there? Have you ever had to do that? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. And all who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. This is the powerful emotion of the psalmist. Our Father, I pray this morning to the living God, I call out to you. I call out to you on behalf of this people. We've gathered before you on this Thanksgiving Sunday morning to hear from you. We've arrived, Father, with a variety of situations in our lives. Some of them are are good. Some of them are hard. Some of us come with broken hearts. Some of us come with great burdens, Father, as we look at the horizon. Some of us will face burdens. But Father, we know this, that you have invited us to come and thank you and praise you. And now, Lord, I pray that you might help us to understand the value of that, what it really means when we praise you, when our hearts are inclined to look heavenward, even when we're, we're in deep, deep in a pit. And so, Father, in the desert, the desert can be a platform for a praise service. In the wilderness, you can shape our hearts in a powerful way. In a tough time, you can transform us into the image of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us how this morning. Teach us how the ancient faced a difficult time. The man whose heart was a man after your own heart. Lord, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Did you, you, you caught it, I'm sure. The first thing that he does when all is caving in around him is call out, God, oh God. 
you are my God. And I think he camped on that thought for quite some time. You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. He was thinking about the alternatives. What if you weren't my God? He was thinking about other people in in dire circumstances who didn't know God, who didn't have God, didn't have a relationship with God. He was thinking about all those other people who had superstitious gods or or, or the gods of materialism in in a deep emotional trough, soul deep pain. Where do they turn? They turn to their superstitious gods. They turn to their material gods. They medicate themselves with their own strength. And he says, I don't have to do that. I call out to God who is my God. Not a general God, but a personal God. My very God. And he's ours through Christ. We're going to be celebrating that soon. In a few moments. The relationship we have. And so he thinks about being related to God, the living God of the universe, the powerful God over all things, the magnitude of his association with God, the provider of all resourcing. When he's in a place that offers nothing, he says, everything I need is in God. He says, I, I'm like, I'm a soul thirsting for you. I, I, I'm a body, like a body in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I'm, I'm like... I'm like parched land that's just longing for water. The, the amazing thing is that the, the more we get to know God, the more we long for him. That's, that's the reality of it. The more I know about my God, the more I long for him. Not because he doesn't fill me up, but because I just long to be with him. I need to get to him, David said. I need to get to God. That's the beauty of coming together and celebrating the Lord's table. To think about it as, a, as our birthday celebration, really. The, birth, the birthday of our new birth with Christ. Every time we come around this table and, and we get to come here, it's a celebration and a reminder to us that, that we have come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and it should come flooding back to us each time. Oh God, you are my God when we're participating in those elements, those symbols of salvation that brought us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, you are my God. Think about it. That's what he says to do first. That's what David did. But there's no question that he was in great agony. As you look about it, my soul thirsts, my body longs. I mean, I'm, I'm in a desperate, desperate situation. What am I going to do? The issue is so serious before me. I mean, he has no idea whether Absalom is going to completely dominate and devastate and destroy his fa- the family, usurp the throne cast Israel into complete disarray. He has no idea of the timing of all of this. How long is this going to be? And so what does he do as he thinks about who can help me? You know, often what we do when those kinds of things conspire against us in our own lives is we, we, we think, I'll just get busier. Maybe if I just take my mind off of all of these things and just, just busy myself, everything will sort of go away or fade into the background. Or, or we think about how horrible everything is and we just become weighted by the thinking, our, our burdened thinking. We become exhausted by our thinking. What does he do here? 
It says this, he says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Rather than thinking busier or thinking burdened and becoming exhausted by bad thinking, he thinks about the Lord, he thinks bigger. He thinks about the greatness of God. He thinks about the power of God and the glory of God. And in these words, he's describing the power. It's talking about the sheer amperage of God. I don't know how else to describe it. I don't have human words to talk about the power of God. But he's talking here about the incredible power. I mean, what word is it? He's thinking about what God can do, and he thinks about the glory of God in the light of his power, which is really the wow factor. He says, listen, I, I, I have been to the sanctuary. I, I've been in the presence of God, and I have seen him do amazing things. Down through my life, I have seen the power of God, and all I can say is when I've seen the power of God, I've seen the glory of God, and I've been, wow, the glory of God is amazing. So he thinks about that. He thinks about how big his God is. You are my God and you are a powerful and glorious God. And nothing's changed just because I'm in the wilderness about you, God. I think it's instructive here that he allows his past experiences to pay present dividends in his life. Don't forget the powerful things God has done for you. Don't forget the glorious times when you have said, wow. When all around you is crumbling or falling apart, don't forget those things. They will strengthen you. And the reminder here for all of us is that God is not confined to the last place where he demonstrated his power and glory. The place of wilderness, the place of desert, is a place of God's power and a place of God's glory. Sometimes we get um, wrapped up with the idea that that there are only certain places where God's power and glory is demonstrated. Or there are certain forms or styles whereby we can experience the power and glory of God. God may take us away from those things and put us in a place alone with Him. Him. So that he reminds us that the place has no necessary significance. Sometimes we've been so caught up with the forms and the styles and the experience of God's power and glory that we've worshipped those forms and styles and places instead of God. David says, the same powerful and glorious God that I witnessed in the sanctuary is my God right here in the desert. So you either be buried by your burdens or you can live above with God who's got you covered. And he reminds you of that. The worst can bring out the best if you resize the circumstances. And if you do that, a praise service can break out. He rehearsed the priceless value of God in his life and being loved by that God. If God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, what can be against you? That's the promise of the scriptures. Don't ever let the circumstances of this fallen world cloud your thinking about God. 
And so he continues on. He thinks about his relatedness. He thinks about his, he thinks about the bigness of God. And then he says in verse 5, my soul be satisfied. Because of your, your love, verse 3, is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long. He, he, when, he, when he thinks about the relatedness to God and when he thinks about how great God is, he breaks into praise. And people around him be saying, David, I, I, I'm sure people around him were saying, David, how can you be praising and, and, and lifting up praise to the Lord at a time like this? You're being run out of the kingdom by your son. Betrayed by your very own son. When, um, when you have a relationship with the living God, when Christ dwells in your heart, the longing of your heart, because it's the longing of Christ, is that the Father would be praised. That's the natural longing of the one who's truly related to God. And he can, he can literally say here, he can honestly say something that is perhaps not automatic for, for many of us. He says, your love is better than life. If and when you get there, truthfully, there's nothing this world could ever do to you that will cause you to come unglued. If God's love is better than life, then you know that no matter what happens to you, you will never ever lose God's love. God's love is eternal. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so he says here, in the circumstances I'm in, because I love God better than I love life, it it really doesn't matter to me if Absalom takes my life. In fact, at that time, he had, first of all, taken the Ark of the Covenant with him when he fled from Jerusalem. And he ordered his men to take it back. Take the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. The bottom line was, he submitted himself to the Lord and said, if you want me to be king, then I'll be back in Jerusalem as king. But I'm not going to run around and try to strive for different circumstances in a different way, different place. The place of worship was Jerusalem. And that's where it will be. Praise, you know, comes automatically, I said, for those who love, are loved by God. And that love of God will empower you Beyond the feeling and understanding of the circumstances. So what does, I will love the Lord with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my mind and with all of my strength really look like? I think David articulates it here in these three verses, three, four, and five. Your love is better than life. Therefore, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as if I'm at a feast. And singing 
I will sing and will praise you. Seems to me that um, praise begins on the inside of us and works its way to the outside. When we really love the Lord with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our soul and all of our strength, it's impossible for us to do anything less than praise Him with our lips, than lift up our hands and engage Him with our body fully. There's nothing that we can do except sing to the Lord. I want to apologize to those of you who have grown up in a culture that dampens biblical worship descriptions. So many of us, I think, have, have grown up to, in, in just one dimension of praise. That dimension is stand as still as you can and open your mouth as little as you have to. seems to me that the description here of the psalmist who gives us biblical permission to let it rip. Do you think? I will, I will glorify the Lord with my lips. I'll bring honor to him with my lips. I'll lift up my hands and rejoice and praise him and open up unfilled hands and say to the Lord, fill me with all that you have. And I'll sing to him with all that I have. I shared with the first group, I, I, I think that church, when I, as I've been growing up, has been the place where I'm least expressive. I don't think it ought to be that way. I was, uh, last Sunday night, I was in a motel watching the Ryder Cup. You know that, that golf thing where the Americans take on the Europeans. I've become a fan of the European team for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which is because Mike Weir always got to play with them, you know, so that was the team. Our Canadian guy got to play with the Europeans, but so I always cheer against the Americans and I love when they lose, but I was just like, <laughs> I was just like, um, I was uh, by my, well, Lynn was with me, but I was just there. There's like hardly any, you know, there's no crowd or anything and I'm I'm, I'm watching as the Europeans are winning again, and I'm just getting so excited about it, I can hardly contain myself. And Because uh, golf is not one of those things that really you break out into craziness, right? I mean, let's face it. I mean, come on. It's like watching grass grow. But anyway, so, so I'm there, and I'm, I'm watching, and, I, and, and it's coming down to the place where if Tiger Woods misses a putt, the Europeans had already won, but they will, they will win conclusively. And there's this, this, this small putt, and I stand at the TV as Tiger, as Tiger is winding up for his putt, getting in his stance. And just as he backs the putter, I go, Miss! <laughs> and he missed! And I was like, ah. I was fist pumping. I was like all over the room. I was like, I can't believe what's just happened. Now, come on. If I can get like that over golf we got to be fist pumping God a little bit don't you think I mean come on and so and so David here says I just I just I'm breaking out into praise I'm thinking praise 
And as he does that, he says, because you are my help. On my bed, he says, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. You know, sometimes we've been skimming in our Christian life. We've been handling God in too shallow a way. Haven't been thinking much about him. Haven't been thinking deeply about God. And sometimes he rockets us into trouble in the wilderness. So we'll stop skimming in our faith. And so he lies on his bed and thinks through the watches, thinking deeper about God. Thinking about who God really is and what God can do through the watches of the night. You won't really know God, you know, if you're satisfied to skim the surface of him. Deep calls to deep. You need to linger long in understanding and take time to really know him. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, says this. I want to deliberately encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. Listen to this. He waits to be wanted. Too bad with many of us, he waits so long, so very long, in vain. Every age has its own characteristics. Right now we are in an age of religious complexity. The simplicity which is in Christ is rarely found among us. In its stead are programs, methods, organizations, and a world of nervous activities which occupy time and attention but can never satisfy the longing of the heart. The shallowness of our inner experience, the hollowness of our worship, and that servile imitation of the world which marks our promotional methods all testify that we, in this day, know God only imperfectly and the peace of God scarcely at all. Such is not the case of King David. He celebrated his relatedness to God. He thought bigger. He broke into praise. He thinks deeper about God. In fact, the the term here, my soul clings to you, it's the word cleaves, which we we find right at the very beginning of the Bible in marriage, uh, that a husband and a wife will cling to each other, will cleave to each other. This word here means to follow hard after God. Listen, beloved, listen. God is not satisfied to have a Facebook relationship with you. He's he's not interested in you tweaking a few things here and there and having some sort of impersonal thing going on with God that's distant and not related. God wants high-touch, high-impact. God is about communing with the very deep places of our life, the very farthest reaches of the core of our soul. And that's the way he wants to relate to us. And he will allow to come into your life whatever is necessary to get that kind of communion and relationship with you. In 
And so David says, um, I get there and realize that I am under the shadow of God's wings and being upheld by his right hand. There's no more powerful description of care than those two pictures. The picture of, in, in the Old Testament, of being under the wings, sheltered under the wing of God, is the highest description possible of parental affection. That God has you under his loving care. And when he talks about, I've, you're holding me in your right hand, he's talking to a predominantly right-handed human nature being like us, whereby our right, we're mostly all right-handed. Some of us are left-handed, but most of us are right-handed. And the right hand is always viewed as the strong hand. Not that God's right hand or left hand are any stronger. God's spirit. He's given a description so we can understand what this picture is all about. We are held in the most careful and loving place possible by the strong saving hand of God. Now that's where you are with God. So he, he says, so, so, okay, so I'm over the River Jordan. I'm not in Jerusalem sitting on the throne. I got people chasing me, wanting to kill me. My own son is betraying me. Families turning against family. Where, where am I? Where am I really? He says, I'll tell you where I really am. He says to the guys around him and the ladies around him, here's where I really am. I'm under the wing of God. I'm in the most affectionate place God can have me. I'm held by his strong, saving right hand. And I'm singing God songs. That's where I am, regardless of the circumstances. I know many of you have experienced that in your own lives in a really tough time. God has sheltered you with his wing. He's upheld you with his right hand. And you sing God songs. Because you think deeply about God. And finally, he says, they who seek my life will be destroyed. They who go down to the depths of the earth, they will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. And I like this. And all who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. He says, listen, I, after all of this, I am no longer going to allow my critics... And those who want to do me harm to shape my thinking or shape my emotions. I am no longer going to linger with the bottom feeders of life who are trying to to throw me off course, who are trying to diminish the size of my God. I'm not going to think there anymore. I'm going to think higher. I'm going to think about my God and who he is and what he can do. And I'm going to rejoice in my God. He talks about the critics, the slanderers, those who misrepresent you, those who are jealous, those who are wicked, direct satanic attacks, those who are petty, those who are angry for no reason. And if any of those are actually opposing and fighting against God, and David says, they are walking in very precarious places. Now the description that he lays out for us here is the, um, the ultimate horror of the 
um, ancient Near East death is to die and have your body lay out in a field and have the animals devour it. At least please the dignity of having my body buried somewhere. And so David says, here's the contrast between those who are in God, those who, who can call out, the Lord is my God, and those who conspire against God. Here's the contrast. In the end, the king will be vindicated. Those who call out to the Lord will be vindicated and saved. But those who do not, their bodies will be strewn and left unburied. And it's, it's not accidental that he chose the jackal. The jackal is the last scavenger. So your body is there throughout the whole time, down to the very last scavenger. So he says to the people around him, am I afraid of those who conspire against God? How could I be? How could I be? Because those who swear by God's name, their horizon, they will praise him. The final outcome for those who have set their hearts on heaven is joyfully sure. Our final chapter is always rejoicing, always vindication. God has made it certain in our lives that we will praise him. And that circumstances can never, ever rob us of that or our joy. So, though pain may pummel you, this psalm says, joy comes in the morning. So think about your relationship with God. Think bigger and resize those circumstances. And you'll break out into praise. And in breaking out into praise, you'll think deeper about God. And as you think deeper about God, he'll lift up your head. Where does your help come from? Your help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Think higher. And circumstances, regardless, can be a place where God reshapes your heart transforms you into Christ's likeness. Our Father, I pray this morning, as in a few moments we celebrate the truth of this visually, as we gather around your table, Lord, and um, celebrate the personal relationship we have with the living God through Christ, as we praise and lift up our voices and our lips and our hands and our bodies to you, as we give you everything because you have given all to us, Lord, I pray that you would encourage each of us here today, regardless of our circumstances, because you, Lord, are my God and earnestly will we seek you. Amen.